0: Really, when I look at people's budget, it's housing, maybe transportation like the car loan, and then eating out. It's third before retirement savings and, you know, saving for college. It's third. We waste so much money on food and eating out.
1: I'm Chris Hill, and that was Michelle Singletary, writer of the nationally syndicated column, The Color of Money. In 2021, she won the Gerald Loeb Award for commentary. In 2022, she was named Investing Author of the Year in the Motley Fool's Women in Investing Awards. Recently, Deidre Woolard talked with her about how our financial habits changed during the pandemic, budgeting, housing, and a lot more. I've been reading her column for more than 20 years. One thing I like about Michelle Singletary, she doesn't hold back. You may not always agree with her ideas, that's exactly why we wanted to have her on the podcast.
2: I'm here today with our Women in Investing Award winner for Best Investing Author, Michelle Singletary. Michelle's 2021 book, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits A Survival Guide, is a practical roadmap for managing money through tough times. She also writes a nationally syndicated column, The Color of Money, which appears in the Washington Post twice weekly. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start off by congratulating you on 25 years of writing your column. That, I mean, what a great gift that is, I think, to people. I love that you recently wrote about saying if debt were a person, you'd slap it. I just love that. (laughs) So can you explain what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, that's sort of my mantra. Uh, So it really is my way to say how much I hate Debt and how I want so many other people to hate debt. Um, recognizing that we are obviously used debt. I took out a loan to buy my home um, a, a way back when. I took out loans to buy cars. No longer do that. Um, so just recognizing that. It is something that people have to do, but I want you to hate it, hate doing it. It's just signing the papers. I want you to curse so that by the time you finish, you're either going to take on less debt or you're going to get rid of that debt sooner.
2: I love that. Do you feel like right now, uh, with interest rates rising, it's it's a time when partic- people are particularly kind of feeling a little bit more of that debt pinch. I think so. I mean, as interest rates rise,
0: people pay attention to the interest rates and the debt that are taking off, taking on. But the thing is, you gotta pay attention to it even in a low interest rate environment. Because you know, people will say, Well, why do you buy a car with cash when you could take the zero percent interest rate? And I said, Well, it's still debt. And if I lost my job and that payment came due, it doesn't matter to me that there's an interest rate on it. I can't pay that loan. And so that's how I tell people. So I I don't want that on my books, so that if something happens to me or my husband or we have to, you know, we lose our income or have an income disruption, we don't have loans on our books. And we can weather that storm a little bit longer if we don't have that debt.
2: Interesting. And that relates uh, to your book as well. Did your book sort of come from the COVID crisis or were you writing it before that? No, it was definitely
0: uh, precipitated by the pandemic. No, we had the Great Recession and we have economic downturns. And then people sort of think, oh, this is going to be over. And they go right back to their old habits. So I wanted to write a book that said, listen, there's always going to be an economic crisis. It's the pandemic now. It was the Great Recession. It's going to be something in the future. So you need to position yourself all the time to be prepared. So I, at the beginning of the book, in the, in the uh, introduction, I talk about, I live like I'm always in a recession and people are like, oh, well, that sounds depressing, but no, it's a way to plan. So when things are great, I don't lose perspective. And, and at the hardest time I have is getting people to save and reduce debt when things are going well it's when things aren't going well, of course, you don't have a choice, but to hand your money well. But I want you in your times of plenty to know that there is going to be another pandemic-like
2: uh, economic issue coming down the road. So I wanted to talk to you about another f- flavor of the month, I think, which is inflation. It's on everybody's mind. We've got, uh, you know, it's at 8.5%, which is just Uh, It's hard, it's really increasing what people have to spend. What advice are you giving people right now who are wondering how to cope?
0: So, you know, inflation is such a tough thing because there's certain baskets of things that we have to buy. You got to pay for the roof over your head. And so if you're renting and your rent's going up, there's not much you can do about that. You got to put food on your table, even if you, you know, take out steak and all, you know, lobster, most people aren't buying that anyway, Um, lobster there is. Um, So you've got to rethink how you buy your groceries. And so it is something that you have to deal with no matter what. And this means that you've got to have a better handle over your budget. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you've got to really look at your budget and see what can you cut to make up for the increases and the staples things that you need, like groceries, gas, the roof over your head. Um, if you're middle income or up income, it's a it's an annoyance, but it's not going to really change or impact your life that much. But you know, paycheck to paycheck and people living in poverty, those are the ones that in this in inflationary environment is gonna really take them over the edge unfortunately
2: yeah I worry about that too um, I study real estate and one of the things I'm concerned about is is the impact on uh, rents and things like that and people being able to afford I'm also concerned I've studied this for a long time and the unequal levels of home ownership what factors do you think play a role there and and how can we think about adjusting that a bit? You know, I approach that question two
0: ways. So the practical way. So rents are going up. People are saying we can't afford to buy a house, or maybe we're in a house we can't afford to upgrade. So what I say to you is, so if you're a homeowner and you're trying to upgrade, you might just stay where you are. If you if you're not moving for a job or there's no reason you just wanted to, you know, get a bigger house, then just stay where you are. Let the kids stay in the same room. You know, the dog, take the dog for a walk if you don't have a yard. Because this is not the time to try to buy a house. It's still a seller's market and interest rates are going up. If you're renting and and you know you don't have control over that. Um, and if you move, you're gonna to move to another situation where the rent is high. So you have to, you know, cut elsewhere. There's not else anything that I can tell you to do. But if you can move in with parents, relatives, grandparents, sisters, brothers, do it and do it now. I am a huge believer in multi-generational housing and shared housing. Even, you know, if you're a single parent and you know another single parent and you're both, you know, your risk going up 20%, then move together. You know, you know, come together so that you can handle um, that cost of housing. Now, people do not like when I say that. I don't want to live with anybody. Or, you know, I need my own space. But right now, what you need is to secure your finances. And if you're coming out of college or you're thinking, I, I you know, you, maybe you move back home with your parents and now the things, you know, we don't have to wear masks and things, and you're thinking, I want to get out, stay, 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 stay that money until rents and housing stabilizes.
2: Really solid advice. And I like what you said there about multi-generational housing. That's just something I'm thinking a lot about too. Makes me think about retirement, the aging of America. We've got baby boomers. They're in their seventies. They're headed towards their eighties. They're at that age where they're going to need more care. Mm. Multi-generational housing seems like one answer. What, what else are you thinking about with regard to that and how it's really going to change our country as a whole? Yeah, you know, I, and as I get closer to that age, you know, I was thinking,
0: you know, people wanna stay, you know, independent. They wanna stay in their homes. And we're talking about people who find that they need more help. Um, and I'm gonna need you to be open-minded that you might not be able to age in place got a lot of stairs. You don't have help. You're far away from your kids or people who can assist you, but you know, uh, you, st- I want to stay that. And I know what I'm talking about. My father-in-law lived on his own uh, for many, 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 many years. And when it came time, when it, when we realized he could not live on his own, he, it was very difficult. It was a difficult conversation. He didn't move right away. Uh, and he eventually did move in with me and my husband. Uh, and after he moved in, it was he, the first month or two, he was surly. He was dark. I had to get therapy. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. I had to get therapy because he was so angry. We could not leave him in his house. He was diabetic. He wasn't taking his medicine. He wasn't eating properly. It would have just, it would have been, we wouldn't have been good children to leave him in that house. So he came to live with us dark, mad. After about two months, it, the light started to come and someone told me, I was talking to a minister and I was saying how depressed I was becoming because he was so depressed. And he said, you just have to have the most cheery, uh, a perspective that you could possibly have, and he gave me a recommendation that worked for me. So he said, every time you go in his room, and he's like, you know, how's your day? Ooh. And I said, well, my father, I said, you know, I said, you know, Dad, um, what's one thing that you can look forward to today? What's just one thing? And he's like, nothing, and went on for about a week or two, and finally, I said, after doing this every single day. I said, so what's one thing? He said, well, the sun is out and I like, I like that it's warm. And I thought, yes. And then every day after that, and it became a little thing that I'd ask him and he'd go, oh, I like that food that you fixed me last night. And his, I saw a change in his disposition and mine. And at the end, we thought he'd live with us for a while, but he ended up getting uh, lung cancer and his time with us was much shorter than we thought it would be. But I remember taking a trip. I had to go on a speaking engagement and I had to leave for a day or two. And I remember at that point, we had an in-home healthcare aide come in to help me um, and my husband. And I said, I'm leaving, but I'm coming right back. And at that point, he was in hospice. And he opened his eyes and he looked at me. He really couldn't talk. And he looked at me and he kind of blinked. And I said, I'm coming right back. I'm coming as soon as I can. So I got back from my trip and I had my travel clothes on in my suitcase. And, and I didn't even go change my clothes. I went right to his room and I said, I'm back. I'm here. And, and uh, the aide said he had not opened his eyes for most of the time I was gone. And he heard my voice and he opened his eyes. Mm. And he died shortly after that. It's like he waited for me to come home. And so it was the best thing for him to come. We had to take him in, kicking and screaming. So if you are that adult, senior adult listening and you're like, I'm not leaving no matter what, you, you, you can't do that because you're gonna stress out your caregivers. And so it may come with time that you have to go live with your kids or your niece or nephew or someone. And then if you are that person taking them in, you've got to prepare for that and be ready for it. When my husband asked, can we take his father in? I didn't hesitate, absolutely, dear, because that's your dad. Uh, and so that's how we're going to have to handle it. And we had money to he-, he had money to help with the aid. So we figured that out. We couldn't afford an aid 24 seven, but we have someone come in the morning to help with breakfast and get him dressed. I took care of lunch. Then we had an evening person come in and help him prepare for dinner and wash him up to go to bed. And that's how we made the money work for the time that he was living with us.
2: Wow! Thank you, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's really powerful because so many of us are dealing with the what they call the sandwich generation. Uh, you know, I'm I, I'm there with my mother as well, and and she does not want to move, and she does not want to have people move in with her, and it's just it's hard on both sides, and it's going to require a lot of really really, really tough conversations.
0: Yeah. You have to keep having the conversation. There will be a point where she will just have no choice and you have to make the move, Uh, but you just keep talking. Therapy helped. Uh, And, you know, we had sort of a family intervention. Um, All his, I wasn't part of that conversation, but um, he had, you know, a couple of sons and daughter and they all kind of had an intervention that said, you can't live here anymore. And he fussed and he yelled and he cussed, uh, but in the end, he came that day with my husband to move in with us, uh, and I we treated him so well, be, even if even though he was at mad and dark. And eventually, he came out of that darkness. So I just hope. That people who are listening, if you're listening and you're like, I'm not leaving, that you take a different attitude because you need to listen to your adult children and how they need to help you and what they need to help you. And this is part of that financial conversation. You know, this is a time where we don't want to have these conversations. They're difficult. We put our head in the sand, both the, the person, the caregivers and the person who needs care until it hits a crisis. And then it costs you more. Uh, and so we believe that had my father-in-law come live with us earlier, we would have been able to catch that cancer sooner because we would have made sure he went to the doctors when he was supposed to. Um, and so if I could just say that to, you know, both the caregivers and the person who might be receiving care is be open to a different living situation. Be open to having someone come in and care for you. Be open because the longer you wait the more it could cost you and your caregiver
2: yeah and absolutely another another aspect of that is power of attorney healthcare directives all of the paperwork that that older people often don't want to sign because they feel like they're they're losing control all of that all of that plays a role as well <laughs> In terms of the pandemic and the lessons we learned, some of them relating to having people move in together, what good habits do you think we've picked up and what bad ones do you think are are still with us? So the best, I mean, we had sort of forced habits of not
0: eating out as much. So we talk so much about how people can save money. And we talk about, you know, Starbucks and coffee and little things like that. But honestly, it's the big things that make the difference. It's housing and transportation, insurance. Those are the big, you know, you're not going to not be a millionaire. Can I use a double negative? (laughs) That coffee is not keeping you from being a millionaire. I mean, the numbers just don't work out that way. But... Paying so much for housing that you can't save is keeping you from being a millionaire. And so during the pandemic, we had people moving in with each other. We had people moving, you know, giving up their apartments. And we had people welcoming folks into their homes and they were saving and paying off debt. And I just hope that we don't, you know, as things open up and people say, oh, I want to be back on my own week." stick to that habit, particularly if you have debt or you don't have enough savings. Eating out. Really, when I look at people's budget, it's housing, maybe transportation like the car loan, and then eating out is third before retirement savings and you know, saving for college, it's third. We waste so much money on food and eating out. Um, I mean, to the tune of, you know, a couple hundred to a thousand dollars, seriously. I mean, I do this financial fast with, I, I run a ministry at my church and I do this financial fast where people can't spend on anything that's not a necessity for 21 days, three weeks. Do you know the number one area where they save is eating out? And you know, the average amount that people save is about five to 600. Hundred dollars a month. Imagine if that was going into a retirement account. And some families, as much as $1,500 a month. So when they fast for those three weeks, not eating out, just, you know, and eating out of their homes. And by that, I mean, is I challenge them not to go to the grocery store except for perishables like, you know, milk and, and bread and just eat whatever's in their house. All those canned beans and the rice and the chicken in the back of the freezer, pull it out, cook it. And they saved a ton of money, which then they did redirect it to saving
2: pay or paying off debt or both or boosting their retirement account. We heard a lot last year about what they were calling revenge spending. And I think this summer is the first real test of how much people are going to spend on, on vacations and everything else, because now with, with mask mandates lifted, it's sort of, you know, it, it seems like everyone's going everywhere and I hope we don't undo some of the the good savings rates that we've had in, in recent years. Well, the numbers already show that we are are
0: already credit card debt is ticking up savings is going down, you know, it, it. People are, you know, have short memories when it comes to their money that you can forget you'll never forget that guy or that gal that that dumped you, but you don't remember the things that happened when you couldn't <laughs> spend money. Uh so unfortunately, when things get better, people forget go back to the And I mean, if you've got debt, you got credit card debt, I would even say a car loan or student loan debt. There is no way you should be going on a vacation right now. That is just financially reckless. You ought to be taking that money and putting towards that. Or if you don't have a decent emergency fund, you need to get a basket and go to the local park and have yourself a little picnic <laughs> instead of going on a vacation.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, that brings me to this question of we don't do that because we, we feel like it's, we want to reward ourselves and things like that. And I think that part of this is because we're not taught this stuff at home. If you, if, if you don't get great financial lessons from your parents, yeah. and honestly, most of us don't, we don't really get it in school. What aspects of personal finance do you wish we learned in school? Well, actually you started it off,
0: right. The things that stick are things that we learn at home. So the default should be teaching your children how to handle money and, and modeling your own financial values. It's got to start at home because it's not going to stick otherwise. And so I, you know, but since it doesn't happen at home, the backup is school because that's where the kids are. That's where the skilled professional are in terms of how to teach them, but that's a lot to put on teachers in addition to what they already have to do. And so, as we build financial literacy programs into the school system, we need to build it into the current curriculum. So, if you're teaching math and you're teaching percentages, you can add in, you know, what does it mean to be fifty percent off or thirty five percent off? Add that to your lesson plan. If you're talking about a civics class, or so I'm trying to think of a class where you teach financial stuff, but you know. Here history of uh, the great, if you're talk, doing history, you know, talk more about the great recession or the great depression, you know, add all those lessons in. And within those lessons, you talk about the importance of saving and investing, right? Because, you know, if you invest and diversify, then you're going to be okay for over the long haul. And so, yeah, I think that if we, since we know that lots of people don't get it at home, the second choice is to incorporate it from kindergarten to when they graduate from college. I think every year there ought to be some sort of mini course on personal finance to make sure they get the Basics. They're not necessarily maybe taught the values. Like at my household, my value is everybody in my house hate debt. My kids hate debt. They, you know, they didn't get credit cards in college. They only got a credit card to establish credit and then they don't use it. And so that's the values that we teach in my home. We teach tithing in our home. We teach giving in our home as part of your budget, not extra. You give because that's what you're supposed to do because to whom much is given, much is required. And so they've been given much and we say, you know, give. And so that can't necessarily be taught in the school because that's my value. That's my husband's value. So, and and I, you know, parents are listening and you're not a good money manager. I get it. This stuff is really hard. I'm going to need you to take some courses. I'm going to need you to sign up for a program where they, you know, teach you how to budget and then you turn around and teach that to your kids just in case they aren't getting it in school.